Brady. Uh, let's give someone uh, else uh, a few minutes. Thanks. Okay, let me get started. Uh, good morning, uh, Brady. Good morning, uh, whoever's listening in the future. Uh, today is September the 4th, year 2022. Today's topic is called The Strategic Ambiguity, with a quote of a racial minorities in America's white majoritarian democracy. So before I do that, before I jump into the... Uh, this topic, I just want to uh, quickly touch base on uh, a few loose ends uh, that uh, I thought probably I should bring it up. So first thing is that uh, this is a listener in the last episode uh, about this uh, African People's Socialist Party raid by the FBI. This guy by the name of Kruag has, uh, I, uh, has texted uh, me in the chat room asking, hey, what about this guy? Chairman uh, Yashitali uh, has met had met with this uh, Russian indicted Russian in somewhere in Russia twice in the past. So you know, Greg posed this question, you know, thinking that probably there's some uh, guilt or crime there. So I am I'm pretty horrible with the checking uh, the chat room. So I just do want to respond to that. The mere fact that someone had a, a meeting with a purported criminal does not establish a probable cause 
to search that person's house or raid his office. So, so if back in the 90s, I happened to uh, uh, had a lunch with O.J. Simpson while he was being investigated, that does not mean I am a accomplice of O.J. Simpson. You know, the, the, the police department may be uh, uh, start an investigation of me, but that's, that's not a probable cause just because you have met someone that FBI believe is a criminal. By the way, not a criminal until a jury convict that defendant, right? So I call that, it's called the guilt or probable cause by association. So it's the same thing that FBI did to the MLK. Because back then, MLK, the J. Edgar Hoover in the MLK days is not accusing MLK a communist. He has the worst thing to say about MLK. But he is, uh, established this probable cause to, to, to wiretap MLK simply because one of the assistants of uh, MLK, his advisor, I think his name is Levinson, a Jewish guy, uh, he was suspect, suspected to be a communist, member of the Communist Party, being from Soviet Union or being from uh, uh, the United States. So it's on that basis that uh, ALK was uh, wiretapped for four years, I believe. So that's my uh, response to Greg's question. What about this uh, Chairman Yashitela had met this uh, indicted Russian person twice? But that doesn't mean anything. So, so that's one thing. Second thing I want to talk about is uh, Biden's speech in Philadelphia. As we know, he had a, a pretty big uh, primetime speech. I think uh, MSNBC and CNN carried live. Uh, other networks did not, and uh, especially the major ones, ABC, NBC, and, uh, and CBS. Uh, I did not follow that. But uh, I did learn something recently about Biden, which I found out to be just ironic hypocritical, whatever you want to call it, because I always insisted Trump is a overt and unapologetic racist, and Biden is a closet racist. So the story is this. I think Biden made a speech. Uh, in a speech, he said, oh, we cannot defund police. We're going to fund the police and all that. It's the same old talk, okay? Here's the thing, what I learned new. Back in the 2016, a, a a a lawyer in Philadelphia who actually uh, is uh, had a pretty uh, decent career in the law enforcement, in the federal law enforcement. He shared with this. Uh, he's a friend of uh, Joe Biden, so he shared this with me. I guess you know these are the not rumors, probably a factual thing, as he told me that uh, Joe Biden's daughter, I believe her name is Ashley is a heroin addict. I could not believe my ears back then. I thought, are you serious? You know, because this daughter is a child between Biden and his second wife, the first lady, Joe Biden, okay? You will think, you know, this is Joe Biden, who literally is the author of a 1994 crime bill, and he, who is also the author of this, uh, Enhanced sentencing for for cocaine, crack, crack cocaine. You would think he and his families, you know, were living a, a squeaky clean life. Apparently not, right? As we know, Hunter Biden's cocaine habit. 
Now, I'm not surprised about Hunter Biden, but for Ashley Biden using heroin, being an addict, I could not believe it in 2016. Until recently, apparently Ashley Biden's diary is somewhat lost to the public for the same reason Hunter Biden's laptop was left, was 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 picked up by, by, by the public. Long story short is this. You think about how many people just in the state of Delaware that Joe Biden's other son, called Bo Biden, who is the attorney general for Delaware, locked up. How many drug possessors, drug users, especially, you know, predominantly, I guess, racial minorities, Joe Biden's son locked up. You would not say Joe Biden is an equal justice kind of guy, right? So he would never seriously, sincerely, practically, materialistically address the racial inequality. You know, you know, you can even call it racial oppression in this country. So, you know, I did not watch his speech, and I only captured one of his sentences about not to defund the police, but fund the police. It's not about defund police or not to uh, or, or fund the police. It's about uh, justice system reform. Right. So, so, so that's that. Now I'm going to uh, talk about today's topic. Not particularly well organized, and uh, it's just I'm going to just go through this uh, concept of a strategic ambiguity, and uh, which is a diplomatic tactic, but how it was actually also used in America. So I want to start with uh, the death is, uh, of this uh, passing of this tremendous guy. His name's uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, okay? Because uh, I consider myself a transcendentalist, transcendentalist, meaning that, you know, my thought process is really about race, about politics, about religion. And uh, and uh, I think uh, Gorbachev, uh, his uh, nickname is Gorby. He is one of those transcendental transcendentalists. He is a transcendentalist from the uh, of the Soviet old Soviet Union. Okay, so what I want to say is this: is that he grew up as a communist. He rise up to the head of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. But he clearly see that the old way of the Soviet Union to use armed forces, use tanks to suppress its people, that is not sustainable. Okay? He transcend communism. He basically believed that by doing so, this is just it's anti-communism all by itself, anti-humanity. So, and he also observed this uh, tremendous waste of money and mankind on the Cold War, right? He is willing to show friendliness, peacemaking gestures to the West. So he, what he did, literally, tremendous, uh, created a tremendous period of a time of peace to the entire world. And think about the two Germanys were united because of 
Mr. Gorbachev, right? And it's not saying, I'm not saying he's a perfect person. He made mistakes. Again, he's a transcendentalist, usually are idealistic people, okay? Like I, I'm a little bit idealistic. I actually strongly believe that in America, we can create a multiracial harmonic society. I do believe so, okay? And, uh, and the Gorbachev is one of those. You know, I also compare, you know, na naturally, a, 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 a plant in nature to the thinking of a transcendentalism. Because uh, in Chinese culture, and if you Google that, lotus, L-O-T-U-S, is a plant. It is admired culturally because uh, it is considered to be a very beautiful plant. And the lotus flowers are extremely beautiful. And the lotus seeds are edible fruits, and they consider to be have some uh, medicinal effect to people, to women, to men, and all that. The most important is this: lotus. If you Google the, the plant named lotus, L-O-T-U-S, you will find out lotus usually grow in the ponds, you know, small body of water. Okay. And uh, the saying is this: that the cultural thinking about lotus is this, similar to or how transcendentalist thinks. Lotus plant grow in the very dirty bottom of a pond where there's all kinds of animals, you know, droppings of the animals, all kinds of things, okay? In the little pond, you can have all kinds of snakes, whatever, but lotus will grow out of that pond and, and, and show its beauty, its simplicity. It's a pristine nature. So, 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 to me, lotus is a good, you know, symbol for any transcendentalistic thoughts. Uh, the second person I want to talk about today, you know, because another person who did a lot to the world peace, you know, even though this person is extremely different from Mr. Gorbachev, and that, that this guy's name is Harry Kissinger. Harry Kissinger is still alive. He's about 99 years old. Gorbachev died at age of 91. Harry Kissinger is still alive, 99 years old, and he's still talking. Okay? And he is the person, I believe, at least what I know, you, first, I know that who used the word strategic ambiguity. Strategic ambiguity is what he used when Harry Kissinger, under the instruction of Richard Nixon, flew to China. That's when the United States also tried to create a better, more peaceful, stable world, decided that it, the United States will be better off to have a normal diplomatic relationship with China. Okay, so again, this is the US, head of the US flew to China and say, let's make defense. Similar to what Gorbachev did say, I will say uh, 17 years later. It's a brilliant strategic move, meaning a demo, democratic maneuver literally create a balance of a power for the world. And the, the world start very quickly go into the time of peace. The Vietnam War quickly ended and, uh, and yada, 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 okay? So, lastly, short, that back then, 
you can imagine, because this issue resurfaced recently, is the issue of Taiwan. The, you know, the both sides, Harry Kissinger and the, the premier, Zhou Enlai, back then, had pretty much can agree on every single thing. But they all know the issue of Taiwan is definitely a showstopper if they cannot agree with each other on that matter. So what they did, they invented this term, strategic ambiguity. You know, in America, you know, in a, in a common man's terms, the kicking the can down the road. Why right? to avoid a showstopper to, to stop, to make a big deal. Okay, so I would say that's brilliant, right? USA and China is uh, enemies towards each other back then. The USA know fully well that China is the only army who fought the United States, as a matter of fact, United Nations in Korea in the 50s. And afterwards, oh, by the way, it's a, it's a truth, it's an armistice, it's a even, the result is even. Nobody wins, nobody loses. And China then helped Vietnam to drive the French out. But of course, the United States is not happy about it. So U.S. start getting in around 1954, 1955. And the, and the US, United States always know China is 100% behind Vietnam. The Ho Chi Minh Trail, the supplies, the South Vietnam, means, uh, called Viet Cong, I believe, is entirely, it's partially helped uh, built by, by, the, by Chinese. Okay, having said that, and uh, I, I will take a call, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, but please mute yourself and, and, and I will give you the opportunity to speak. So, so on the topic of Taiwan, it's, uh, we need, they need a solution. So they, they come up with this solution, it's called a strategic ambiguity. So I find that to be very, very nicely done, okay? And I know about that. So because of Harry Kissinger's recently you know, resurfaced, because of the death of uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, I truly believe these two persons made a tremendous contribution to the world peace. So I said, hmm, let me think about this strategic ambiguity, which I learned when I was only 12 years old. Believe it or not, back then, the US-China relationship is such a huge shock to all the Chinese people. We got almost all kinds of news about the Nixon, about Watergate, about, about the United States, okay? So now I'm going to talk about the strategic ambiguity used domestically in this country. Because I'm pretty sure Henry Kissinger, I'm pretty sure he's a student of history. I don't think he just come up with this idea in Shanghai out of the blue, he must have learned from the history. So there's a lot of strategic ambiguity. Remember, the US-China relationship is a foreign affairs, but America was founded out of foreign affairs also. America during the independence war have allies and enemies, right? I think Spain and the France were convinced to be our allies against the British. So, and, uh, and also, during the Independence War, we have a Native Americans. They've been fighting for their land for all the time. They, they fought British, 
they fought the Americans, right? So, and uh, as you also know, that uh, the slaves during the Civil War, some of them became soldiers, right? So during the war, racial minorities has become assets to, to either side, to the British, to the Americans, to the South, to the North during the Civil War and that. My question is how they are treated. It's exactly what's their legal status, right? You are helping some white man in the South against some white man from the North for a slave-owning white man. What's your legal status during the war, the Civil War, or, and after the Civil War, and vice versa? So let me tell you this. I see a lot of strategic ambiguities. Okay, so why we need a strategic ambiguity? Because in my opinion, that is a way to motivate racial minorities to participate in those military efforts. Is it good, bad? I don't know, but I'm just laid it out for you to decide, which you know, I think some of you can get upset, but my goal is to educate you. So in the future, when you are, you are offered to be joined a political force, such as voting for the Democrats or voting for the Republicans, think about it. What is the exact deal for me in this social contract, right? Our law, you know, our Declaration of Independence is a social contract. Our constitution is a social contract. That defines the relationship among people and the, and the people with the government that people consented to form. Okay, so I'm going to talk about this strategic ambiguity domestically. So first of all, I want to start with the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. As we know, the Native Americans are, you know, are, are basically legally defined in these two documents as savages, right? So to convince them to fight for American independence, it's kind of difficult. So, but they did, the Native Americans, I believe. I'm not, a, you know, I cannot say I'm, I studied history well because, uh, you know, I, I immigrated from China to the US. So, but I'm pretty sure during the American Revolution, the British has offered the Native Americans some kind of autonomy, some kind of, some kind of a territory arrangement to the Native Americans. That's the British strategy of a strategic ambiguity. Right to get help from the Native Americans because the Native Americans know the landscapes extremely well. And I'm pretty sure on the American side, the same arrangement has offered. But however, there is a strategic ambiguity in that. If you recruit Native peoples, later you call them savages, right? To be, your, to be involved in your military, being a combatant, what exactly is he? I guess mostly he's a male. He's a legal status in this social contract. Now take a guess. There is ambiguity, strategically placed, right? So not to sidetrack, I'll just give you an example. 
I, I saw, because uh, I'm a big uh, Vietnam War buff, so I watched any Vietnam War documentaries. So I remember seeing uh, some interviews with African-American soldiers about, you know, the, the demonstrated racism in, in Vietnam, in the barracks of the U.S. Army. So the consensus is this, in those days, is that if a black and white soldiers in, is in the front line, in the jungle, in the rice paddies, there's no racism. One for each other, one for all, all for one. No racism. But the fact is, the matter of fact is this, only 10% uh, of the troops are actually in the front line. 90% is in the, in the rear, in the barracks, in the RNRs, in the administrative buildings. Over there, both the white soldiers and the black soldiers all have said, racism is rampant. So think about the set here is that the actual legal status of a person, especially a racial minority, will change depending on where you're at. Because there's always a strategic ambiguity about the legal status of racial minorities. So let me move on to the to the African Americans. As we all know, African Americans in the uh, Constitution and the, in the Declaration of Independence are designated to be slaves. They are legally defined to be slaves, right? So. And one of the reasons the founding fathers want to have an independence and have a revolution is that they want to keep the slaves. And they, they sense that the, probably the British king is not going to allow it soon. So we know that. So the strategic ambiguity for the African-Americans probably is more manifested during the Civil War, right? When the North is uh, promised that this is a so-called 40 acre and a mule, this thing, which I minus then is real, right? It's a recruitment tool for the North to recruit the slaves to help the fight. I guess the slaves will know the plantation by, uh, by, uh, at this time way better than, than the, probably the plantation owners, the slave owners, right? So, 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 so there will be a, some kind of offering to the slaves say, hey, join us for the fight. And then we'll, we'll, give, we'll give you something. We're here to, to free you and all that. So of course, there's a lot of attractions. But to the South, I, my understanding that the, 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 the Confederacy did not, uh, Confederate armies did not have fighting soldiers that are black. And as we know, however, there is a strategic ambiguity. How real is the, this deal? of this social contract, for lack of better expression, that the black soldiers will get a 40 acres and a meal. It never happened, right? That strategic ambiguity, like I said earlier, in the layman's terms, of kick the can down the road. We made it a promise, and we'll, but we'll be opportunistic moving forward at all times. So the next group of people I want to talk about that are assigned with this, this strategic ambiguity is the women. As we know, women is not mentioned in the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. 
exactly what's the woman's status in this social contract, it's not clarified until very later on, you know, women start to, you know, demonstrate for voting rights and all that, right? There's not a really a good legally defined status for women either. So, so, so I think it's all, they are all intentional because uh, again, I always said, you know, this American democracy is truly a white majoritarian democracy. And as a matter of fact, very early on, it is a white male majoritarian democracy. Under that framework, all the rest, they all suffer from this strategic ambiguity. When there's uh, no law or, to, or a constitution or clause to define a group of people, their legal status, then it leave up to the courts to decide what is the legal status of these different groups. So this is what I recently find out. And uh, well, before I go, uh, before I forget, one of the reasons I think I want to stress this strategic ambiguity, it's because of this, okay? Because I talk about this guy, uh, this woman, Amy Wax, who is a University of Pennsylvania law professor, right? She wrote a book about reparation, about racial justice and all that. I had an episode about her. You know, what upset me, intellectually upset me is that she considered the racial wrongs that happened to the African-Americans, specifically African-Americans, was simply an accident. She used the word, the parable, P-A-R-A-B-L-E, of the pedestrian. She used a normal car accident, a tort situation, to describe what happened to the African-Americans. I just strongly disagree, and I I was very upset with intellectually with her 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 boldness to assert this way, because uh, I call this strategic ambiguity. I call it strategic, meaning it's a it's a deliberate act to be vague, so you can get an advantage over that group of people. That's why I call it strategic ambiguity. It's not your regular ambiguity. Okay, it's not about oh, something I'm just not sure. Well, actually, it's something you are sure of, but you purposely make it more confusing, more opportunistic, so therefore you can take advantage of that, you know, less advantage, less developed or, 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 or disadvantaged group of people. So, so now. I'm going to go to you know another good story. You know you can go back to revisit Uncle Tom's story. You know Uncle Tom. You know I do not read novel, but I have a general idea. Uncle Tom basically has been helping his owners over and over and again during the horrible times his owner had. He is hoping one day he can earn his freedom. I think he, his owner always tried to trick him into something else. All those it's just strategy, strategic ambiguity. Right, so you know it's under this strategic ambiguity that the United States signed about over 400 treaties 
with the Native Americans, right? These treaties are contract with them. The white man fought the natives, mostly natives lost, so they signed a treaty, yada, yada, yada. Those treaties, in my opinion, is made with strategic ambiguity. That's why based on one scholar who's researched the, uh, those treaties, not a single one of those treaties was fulfilled. Again, strategic ambiguity. You know, the strategic ambiguity also can be used for to divide and conquer, right? There's a difference between house slaves and the field slaves. They're both slaves, but if you make that ambiguous distinction, there's no distinction at all. They're all slaves, but you want to make it that way. So you can show these oppressed people, say, look, it's not me being me. You're just not good enough, field slaves, as compared to the house slaves. If you were as good, you would be the house slaves. Strategic ambiguity. Right, so, so I will go further because I talk about this uh, Puerto Rican cases in the past. So I did some research. Like I said before, in the constitution, the blacks are legally defined as slaves. Natives are legally defined as savages. But what about the Chinese, the Japanese? The, the people from the formerly uh, Spanish colonies, you know, like Puerto Ricans, Guans, people in the Guam, in Philippines and all that. Well, when there's no law defining them, the courts will define them. So I did the research. I think it's around 1896. It's for the first time Chinese was defined as a race that are so alien to the United States that they should never be allowed to become the citizen of the United States. Now my word, it's by a Supreme Court justice, a John Harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N. So it's around 1896, that's how it's defined. So moving up a few more years in 1991, in the insular cases, again, now the Supreme Court is considering what exactly is the legal status of these Puerto Ricans? And uh, this again, this time again, is the US Supreme Court that defined these Puerto Ricans as quote, alien race. It's a little bit different. Chinese race is never called alien race. It's just called, it's a race all by itself, Chinese. It's called Chinese race. And they are so unassimilatable that should, never be allowed to be the citizen of the United States. And then for the Puerto Ricans, we'll give them the citizenship, but they will be considered alien race. And uh, what about the Japanese? The Japanese in the 1942, uh, 1943 case in the US Supreme Court, uh, this actually is not in US Supreme Court, it's in the district court, but it went up to the US Supreme Court, is that in the federal court, in the district court level, the, it's another, again, it's a federal judge has defined the Japanese is also of an alien race, 
loyal to the empire of Japan, who will take on any first opportunity available to him or her to spy for empire of Japan. So Japanese is also considered an alien race as recently as 1943. So these are the legal status. What's the problem with this strategic ambiguity? What I find out is this. Oh, by the way, before I go back, uh, I, 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 I need to go back to the Puerto Ricans again. What I find out is this. It's always related to wars. When the United States recognized Puerto Rico, people born in Puerto Rico to be the citizens of the United States, there's a need for that, a military need. They, the U.S. government want to make the inhabitants of the Puerto Rico to be eligible for military draft. Okay, I think it's for the First World War. And as I have said earlier, those strategic ambiguity will happen when the U.S. government will need you to fight a war. Okay, so, 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 so that in a nutshell, you know, is what I want to talk about. Uh, the uh, one of the things I want to greatly stress is this, because I think I've talked about this before. All these, all, all these, uh, all these, the entire show, I have never devoted one single episode for Native Americans. It's for the exact reason of this thing called the strategic ambiguity. You know, we all know the Native Americans was wrong, probably the worst, you know. They always said, you know, I actually, I have to go back to the international scene a little bit. As you know, there's a recent report for, out of UN about the uh, uh, human rights violation in the Xinjiang uh, region of China, right? Uh, for the first time, uh, I'm told that uh, this, the word genocide is not used in that report. You know, I, I'm not taking sides. I'm pretty sure there's some human rights abuses in China. I'm pretty sure. I came from there. I know of it. I always think about it this way. How to determine there's a genocide in a country? I would say you don't need to really see how many people got killed. You need to look at a few things. Population-wise, is there growth of the population or is there a decline of the population? Economically, you will want to find out from the trade perspective, business, is the trade volume, the commerce, is the volume of commerce increasing in that area among those people who we believe is suffering from genocide? If both are having positive growth, then probably there's not a genocide. Any accusation is just an accusation. A journalistic one or a political scientific uh, science one. By the way, political science is a fake major because politics is not science. Politics is uh, something else, not science. So, so I use that too. The growth of the population and the growth of the commerce. So you think about it, that you look at the Native Americans in America, you look at the population, you look at their business. I think they, they will likely, can, we can call it a genocide happened to the Native Americans. Okay, 
and uh, and uh, and uh, and we do not need to accuse too much of others. We need to correct our own racial wrongs as soon as possible. Because I always believe this is that strategic ambiguity cannot be used domestically forever. It is because we have used this strategic ambiguity, such as separate but equal, and the forced integration of schools, we have never had a real solution for our racial divide. Because our politicians is using this racial divide to get votes for themselves, like Joe Biden. There's no true leader that truly recognize that it's time to not to kick the can down the road. It's time to address the issue heads on before it's getting just too big and too soft. Okay, so I'm going to you know bring up a uh, two very wise men. Uh, one one guy's Mulford, I think M U L F O R D. I can be wrong. He's a big invest uh, investment advisor, made a lot of money out of that. He is a big fan of uh, uh, Singapore's late uh, premier or president uh, Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew. Okay, another person who had a lot of admiration of the same guy from Singapore is a uh, Harry Kissinger. Okay, uh, I, I, my apology, I forgot this uh, first guy's name, who, who is a finance guy, investment guru. He admired Lee Kuan Yew because uh, Singapore is a, a multiracial society. He said that Lee Kuan Yew, a Chinese, uh, Chinese is about 70% of the population of Singapore. And basically, this guy, he admired Lee Kuan Yew because Lee Kuan Yew very early on realized that there will be racial divide in a multiracial society. I think Singapore is a lot more, mostly made of uh, Chinese, Malays, and uh, Indians. Uh, Indians from India, not Indians from the from America. So, 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 Lee Kuan Yew very early on has said he would need to address this any possible racial divide very forcefully, very early on, before the problem. That's too big. One of the biggest thing he did is this. He made official language of Singapore, not of Chinese. Again, majority, 70% of Singaporeans are Chinese. He made the official language of Singapore to be the English. He said by doing so, he will avoid any possibility that down the road, anyone, any racial group have, have, will have an advantage over another, educationally, economically, governmentally. He's very serious about that. And he was very successful. Singapore to, to, today still is a very, very successful multiracial democratic society. How many bad things you heard, bad, uh, bad, bad things you heard coming out of Singapore, right? So another person who admired uh, uh, Lee Kuan Yew is uh, Karen Kissinger. I think I mentioned this uh, in one of the past episodes that when Harry Kissinger, again, 99 years old, still going around being interviewed, much, much sharper than, than the 70, I guess, uh, some year old, 78-year-old uh, Joe Biden. He's 20 years older, but he's as sharp as a, he's very sharp, Harry Kissinger. 
So you know, he he said that this interviewer asked him if today, as of today, considering all the problems in Ukraine, all the environmental problems, all the racial divide in America, who will be the person United States can use to solve the the societal ills of America? And the Harry Kissinger said, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore. And this interview will ask another question is that for the, all the global climate crisis, who will be that person to address the global climate crisis? And the Harry Kissinger said, Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore. So to me, these two wise men's words taught me one thing is that whatever societal problem you want to address, whatever historic wrong you want to remediate, you have to be even-handed at all times. You have to be even-handed all times. You want to do reparation? Yeah, but you have to do it even-handed, justifiably. Because if you don't do that, it's not going to work. You want to protect the environment? Oh, go for it. But you have to do it even-handedly. You have to do an impact analysis for all people, not just a few, not just for the special interest group. I guarantee you, 99% of so-called climate crisis initiative by the US government is entirely bought by the special interest group. So I don't believe it. I will not participate. So what is the, what, who, whose role is it to make sure all these initiatives are done even-handedly? It's supposed to be the court, right? The court is the place where justice should be rendered. So, you know, you know this show is all about, is the court really a place to get justice, to settle the dispute peacefully and civilly, so there's less gun violence, less violence in general. I'm not sure. I'll just tell you this. You know, I think I see a strategic ambiguity in our court system. Is it, is it a deliberate propaganda? Is it a tool for racial oppression? You know, I've been told that the lady justice is blindfolded. No, she somehow will be very even-handed with a scale in her hands. You know, whether the U.S. Supreme Court decision just this year on the U.S. versus Madero and on the on the Dobbs decision, exactly what's the legal status for the Puerto Ricans? Do we still have that strategic ambiguity? Here, exactly what's the legal status for this, uh, for all the women? It's not defined in the constitution, right? There's no, no clause of Bill of Rights saying women is this and women is that, the woman should do this, should do that. So it's all up for the court to decide. So is that also a strategic ambiguity? Are these women are just uh, useful idiots? 
when vote when, when the election comes, just have them to vote Democrats. Then we should be all good. Right. So you know, let's talk about bar associations. Like I said before, in a capitalist society, capitalist society, profit seeking is the goal, right? Of the of the, any trade union, a uh, trade organization. What's the bar association's role? To to make a Make justice in justice system. Do we really need law to make us safe? Do we need more laws to make the world you know, more just? You know, according to Thomas Paine, one of our founding fathers, laws does not give you rights. Laws actually take your rights away. More laws only means that it will make lawyers richer you will not make the society more just, more peaceful. More laws is going to make the police more powerful, make the more FBI, uh, the FBI more powerful. But is that justice? Right? But ultimately, you know, the strategic ambiguity, which I do want to address, is that, you know, is our democracy really just a white majoritarian democracy? Because the mature white majority democracy is a you know oxymoronic term right because the founding fathers warn us about this so-called uh, tyranny of the majority but the matter of fact is that us United States was founded as a white majority democracy but it's really not a de democracy and exactly what is my legal status in this social contract because of the Constitution of the United States, because of the Declaration of Independence. You know, I don't want to be strategically and ambiguously defined anymore. So I think, you know, I speak for all other racial groups, and probably women too, who resent the Dobbs decision. That when it comes to Justice, when it comes to, you know, jurisprudence, you just have to be even-handed at all time. You just have to be a transcendentalist at all time. Because I, by, only by doing so, your judgment is reliable. Your judgment does not create injustice. You, you know, that will create violence down the road. So, so that in a nutshell is a quick little rant I want to do today. So I see Amanda here and I do want to invite her, Amanda. And I know Amanda, you're doing a podcast yourself. So I always enjoy talking to you. And we want to talk, just call in. Good morning, Peter. Hey, Amanda. Can you hear me? Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes, okay. I can. Um, very nice, very nice talk this morning. I um, appreciate the perspectives. I have a question. I was listening, and this is um, 
it's it's kind of related to um I, I'm thinking you can help me figure out. I was listening to something and and they were critiquing Amy Klobuchar's take on student loans okay. as being as being mm-hmm. neoliberal. And I'll give you a little more context. But I, it's her idea. The concept she explained did not mm-hmm. seem neoliberal to me. So I just want to. I just want to. Can, can I don't know if you watched Amy Klobuchar on. On uh, um, oh, who's that? Guy? I, 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 I do have an opinion on the student loan. I'm glad you asked. But the, uh, so so ahead. so Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. So they were mm-hmm. lobbying at Amy Klobuchar that she was being neoliberal by suggesting that student loans could be repaid for people who go into. Professions that the country needs, like teachers, uh-huh. like nursing, mm-hmm. like that you mm-hmm. forgive the. And to me, that makes sense that we would spend government, uh, in other words, our money, government money, to help mm-hmm. educate people who are going to be giving back to our community. That's how mm-hmm. I conceive of it. The two mm-hmm. people critiquing that position were saying that's a neoliberal position. And that now uh-huh. I'm confused. Can you help me I out? I hear you. Sure, sure. First of all, I mean, it's a great question, Amanda. Uh, I uh, I will use the word hate, labeling other people. I don't label anyone uh, for the reasons this. In the, I know I think uh, I was on the Katie Hopper. I called in Katie Hopper show this the other day. I you know people can tell. I'm not a fan of a communism, okay? Because I, I came from there. I know what it is, you know. I'm not going to go back to that, you know, and, and all that. But what I'm trying to say is in the communist China, there is a saying called, uh, put a hat on your head. In, in American term, it's just called the labeling. Meaning in, in, in China, if someone put a hat on your head, put a, and then write the word American spies, then you are just, you know, you're a dead man walking, basically. So labeling people, in my opinion, you know, is the last thing I wanted to, to any person, okay? So I will not label anyone this label or that label. I, I don't even like the word LGBTQ, whatever, because someone's sexuality is a complete private matter. I don't want to make a, pol- a political slogan out of it. So I'm not going to label anyone. If they want to label themselves, it's their choice, not mine. So now going back to this uh, uh, education student loan, it's just another good example of what I'm talking about. We have a student loan crisis. We know that. You know, just like, you know, reparation, uh, uh, call for reparation, all that. There well, is a historic Pete, wrong. Let, Peter, 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 I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry to mm. stop you, but before you go, move on, it, mm. it's less about calling Amy Klobuchar a neoliberal mm. and mm. more about that the policy, mm-hmm. that that particular policy, that that approach Yes, it, it, I it was a neoliberal approach, and and yes. I was trying to figure out whether or not, and maybe that's where you were going. I just wanted yes, to. Yes, that's actually exactly. Yes, that's exactly okay. what I'm Okay. Okay. Thank, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, thank you. I mean, no, no. I want a meaningful, uh, uh, insightful conversation with people. I mean, you are a very insightful person because you are a retired teacher. You know the education system very well and all that. I. Uh, I consider student loan. I I feel very uh, uh, sad by uh, for the younger people, 
because uh, when I was go through the college education, everything's free. College, I went to top university in China, free. It's totally based on score. And I, I came to the United States. I went to a graduate program. I, I paid $3,000 for the first semester. And then I got the graduate assistantship. And then, you know, I finished off, you know, and, uh, you know, it's just like, I don't owe anyone any money. Student loan to me is like a chain to a slave, except it's a financial one. Right. So I just feel that, uh, you know, I personally just me that if I owe anyone any money, I can I will have problems sleep at night. I just tell you that. So I just believe this younger generation of students, you want to call them, that, you know, they are really burdened by that. So for that, I'm sympathetic. And here's how I see. I know Biden signed a, a law, an executive order saying some student loan forgiveness. I've said already, once again, you have to do it legally. My understanding is that the Constitution only allows Congress to enact a law to forgive student loan, not the president. Okay, I'm pretty sure some people should argue about it in the court. So let's talk about these people, these miserable people who owe, say, uh, you know, I think the average is what, 50,000 or whatever. Uh, by the way, I look at the tuition these days, like 70,000 for University of Pennsylvania undergrad a year. I said, if I have that kind of money to get a child, I'll say, oh, don't do, go to the college. Go to the community college for free. And here is uh, your $400,000 for your four-year education. Go run a start a business. Okay, I'll do that. So now let's go back to this question of student loans. I actually believe there's a lot of special interest groups has grossly exaggerated, not the exact value of the education, but the path to be an educated person. It's like a, a, a mortgage broker trick you to buy a super fancy house when you are financially just not cannot afford. Right. In old days, go back to the old days in China, you know, where poverty, starvation, famine is pretty rampant. Old day. Is there education? Yes. But you look at the needs of a family, of a child. It's the food security first. Right. Put the roof on his or her head. And then when you have some extras, you find out what's the next available educational opportunity. You are not teaching that child saying, well, your child in this country, you are entitled to an educational college. And I know it costs 40,000 a year. I don't know your potential, but here's $40,000 a year. Just go get the degree. And worse is that these student loan companies, you know, they have a, they are profit seeking companies, right? Their goal is not necessarily promote the education or useful education, such as teachers and nurses from the students. They, their goal is to just find the best uh, 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 person who can repay the loan, right? So you have this uh, long, prolonged period of time where the wrong is already sinked in, okay? It's already sinked in. The, actually, the problem of the student debt is not just some people owe some money, which is bad itself. The problem is also the college is so expensive. It's two areas. So to me, you cannot address just one area of thinking 
the root cause of the issue you're addressing will go away. So that is how I look at it. So whoever say, I want to take on this student debt crisis situation, I'll say, I welcome it. But if you don't address both, I will not buy it. It's just, I will not buy the defund police slogan. At the same time, I'm not going to say, just keep funding them when they are truly become a tool of oppression instead of a protect to protect and to serve. So that's how I look at uh, Amanda. I don't know whether you know your thoughts are. Well, that still doesn't really answer if structurally that policy is neoliberal because I find it to be more socialist. If there's a social benefit to doing it, doesn't that make it a socialist and not a neoliberal? Policy? Sorry, I did not answer your question. My apologies. So I'm going to answer your question. This question now is that under that framework I just said that you have to look at the root cause and the symptom at the same time. Meaning, if a child has a fever, you have to find out whether it's a viral or not. If it's a viral, you have to give him some antibiotics and, and a pain relief, liver, right? So to your question is this. If nurses and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, I forgot what's the, uh, and the teachers are uh, in short supply, then the government should just directly invest in the, in the, uh, in the college itself so that the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, cost of getting those degrees is just uh, much lower than getting other degrees. That's how you use the market to adjust. So the kids will still have a choice. You know, if you're not that great academically, you have a choice to uh, learn to become a teacher to a normal school. A normal means a teacher school here. Right. And that only I pays $12,000 a year. You, you are right? Because that's what's in China, right? In those days, like Mao Zedong, I'll tell you, the, the guy who, 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 who took over China in the 1949, right? A lot of people admire him. I, I find out this guy, uh, uh, the Africa's People's Socialist Party, they admire Mao Zedong. He is not from a very wealthy family. He is from an okay, you know, well-to-do family, but not too wealthy. Where he ended up with, he went to a, called the Normal School of Hunan, meaning that, uh, Hunan. it's a very, you know, it's like a LBJ. LBJ went to a teacher school, I believe. You know, he always, LBJ always believes he's, he is intellectually inferior than his, uh, you know, the people under him. And that, that follow along with those Harvard educated smart guys on Vietnam and all that. But Mao Zedong, it's hilariously enough, Mao Zedong is the only Chinese leader never studied in Western countries or in Soviet Union. But he actually, all the strategic decision he made is actually correct, except when he, got the power when he stopped build so-called communism it's all hell break loose okay that's why you know again I, i'm not going to you know be totally devoted to any polit politics or religion or whatever so so going back to your question so yes if it is that important for the public goods such as nurses and teachers then the government should just invest on the supplier side the supply side economy supply it make it lower so the kids can make an intelligent decision or educated decision, say, hey, do I spend 35,000 to be a computer science major or do I go spend only 12,000 to be a teacher's major? So now those politics, uh, politicians, what they do is uh, 
Uh, now, uh, this is why uh, when I was I was talking to this lawyer friend of mine, uh, you know, he said that he is very depressed with where this country is going. It's just our politicians is beyond stupid, truly beyond stupid, and they actually think the people are even more stupid than they are. It's just sad. But anyway, sorry, I digress. I, I, uh, I see, look, sorry, Lucky, I just saw you. I'm going to uh, take you as a caller, too. Yeah, you can unmute yourself. Yeah, try unmute yourself, Lucky. Yo, what's up, guys? Hey, Thank there you go. Thank you for joining me. I gotta flip something real fast. No problem. So I totally go. agree. Go ahead, Amanda. Oh, go ahead, Lucky. I'm sorry. <laughs> you guys are great. <laughs> you are so polite towards each other. I'm, I'm so happy to see that. Uh, no, the politeness is absolutely necessary because I'm, 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 I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm, I'm feeling a bit um, like direct and impolite, but, you know, I don't say anybody's this or that, but you got you got to give people a chance to complete their fucking ideas you know what i mean yep. some people like some like there's there's discussion there's debate where you hear each other out completely until they don't have anything to add to it and like that's your idea that's your complete idea okay now let's talk about this but some people they'll interrupt in the middle of your idea and you only have half your idea out and they're already trying to like it's basically a distraction technique, you know? I know. You could say straw man, you could say paper tiger, but it's bullshit, you know? It's it's a distraction. So yes, yes. You need to complete their ideas. Yes. That's all I have to say. Yes. And allow Absolutely. others to do the same, okay? Uh -huh. Go, yes, ahead. Go ahead. So, okay, sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I hope I did not cut you off, Amanda, earlier. And... Uh, no, my phone is acting weird. I'm my app is acting up, so I'm I don't want to cause technical technical issues. Yeah, I had the same issue the other day when I called in the uh, Katie Halper show. That uh, that uh, somehow as soon as he, she accepted me as a caller, uh, the app crashed, and it's a, it was yeah, okay. Yeah, that's been happening to me. Too. Okay, that, dude, that's, that's really fucked you guys. I feel bad. Um, I think I have good reception because where where I'm at right now has really good digital rights laws. So maybe okay. maybe I have <laughs> there's a little more network, a little more yeah. hardware that lets me through than you guys or my, you guys my mute button keeps doing itself by really itself. Know. But also there's things you can do you know on your phone itself. To give yourself more security as well. Like, there's no such thing as 100% security. I'm not like, I'm not bullshitting like that, but you know, there's things that you can do to improve your situation with mm -hmm. regards to, you know, giving up your date, metadata, and all that bull. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. 
Yeah. So yeah. Amanda, what show you're doing? I I I I remember I saw you doing your your show. What what your show about? Could you tell us uh, about it? Crowdsourcing the revolution. Um, right now we're um. So yesterday's episode was focused on talking about the strike happening against Kaiser, uh, okay. which provides behavioral health services, and okay. also about the ERA. There's going to be there's a um, a date has been set for September 28th to hear uh -huh. um, Illinois versus mm, Ferraro or something like that, where where they're going to look at. The the um, whether the time constraint on the ERA is actually a valid thing for uh, equal rights amendment, as you probably know, equal rights yes, amendment is still yes, sitting I, in in limbo. I have something to say about it, but go ahead. I don't mean to cut you. Oh short. no, no, please feel free. I'm interested to hear what you have to say. I've been I've read a bunch yeah. of amicus briefs about this upcoming um, case. So okay. Okay, as you probably know, the, I mean, uh, what I started doing this show called the Judicial White Privilege, the People's History of uh, American Jurisprudence since, uh, I think, April uh, or, or end of March, I forgot exactly. So a lot of good, because this is a very critical show about the courts, right, including mostly the Supreme Court. So I just have to say the Supreme Court has been a gift that keeps on giving. And uh, this adopts decision changed me a lot because prior to Dobbs decision, I'm know about this ERA. And I can tell you back then I was like, before the Dobbs decision, I was like, ERA is not necessary because there's already the 14th amendment, you know, uh, established the equal treatment of all people, regardless of their gender and all that, right? So, so you know, as I mentioned earlier today is that laws does not, give you rights. Laws actually take your rights away. You know, that's not what I said. That's what the founding fathers said, which I agree. And you, if you, a group of people or all the people need a law to have a right, that's itself a bad thing because of something we call the liberty of freedom at the founding of this United States is called a natural law. Natural law meaning you do not even need to write it on the book. It's law by the nature. Okay, so so that's why I was not a big fan of ERA. But now with the Dobbs decision, I was like, boy, you know, anything goes. If I were if, if I were a woman, yeah, I will go ballistic. You know, I even suggested that uh, maybe you know a few of those Supreme Court justices can be impeached, uh, impeached uh, uh, because of what they said about the Roe v. Wade during the you know uh, confirmation. But I totally understand, Amanda, what you're doing. With the uh, ERA, uh, uh, and the, because you kind of want to legislatively, uh, legislatively bring back, you know, women's rights, you know, and uh, so yeah, that, that's all I know about. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I just it's it, because it, it's been ratified by 38 states. This time constraint thing is is the only thing hanging it up. Mm -hmm. And and it wouldn't have even been hung up if it wasn't for Attorney General Barr writing some stupid letter in January of 2020 before the, before uh -huh. Virginia even ratified it. So there's a it, uh -huh. it's an ongoing wonky thing, but it is ridiculous uh -huh. that that 
Congress hasn't passed it yet. I'm I'm uh-huh. curious to see what happens. So I appreciate you giving me the floor for that conversation. Oh, you're more than welcome. I'm, you, I mean, uh, crowd so, uh, crowdsource love evolution, that's a great concept. You know, I actually want to tell you, Amanda, I have this crazy thought. I mean, these are the things about uh, this calling uh, platform. People like uh, Loki sh- uh, said earlier, you actually will have an opportunity to finish your idea, you know, before someone, you know, attack you. Because, uh, you know, we all respect other people's rights uh, to, to speak up completely of their mind, right? So about this outsourcing revolution, I was like, I truly hate this uh, war on drug thing, right? Like I said earlier, you, you lock up so many people, you know, in my opinion, the drug should just be legalized, dispensed by physicians and pharmacists and all that. I said, would that be nice People, if only nice, if the people from the left and the right and in the middle just go to Washington D.C. Remember those uh, uh, pink pussy uh, match, and also there's a march, and there's also this uh, million man march uh, in the past. Let's have another million person march. Everyone hold a small bag of marijuana on the mall in D.C. Because the federal law still prohibit marijuana, right? Just find out whether the D.C. police can lock up one million people for holding a bag of weed. Now, I'm not a weed user myself, okay? You know, I know when I'm going to use those painkillers. When I have cancer, I'll use a maximum amount of painkillers. I'll, I'll save my usage of weeds and all that in, the, in, in those days, in the future days. But I'm totally, you know, for legalizing all drugs. They all should be go through the physician and the pharmacist and probably even insurance company. So, I, you know, if you could crowdsource some kind of organization to just march to on the street of DC because it's a federal law still banning marijuana, holding a small bag of marijuana. But by the way, you know, you can, you can see how Hunter Biden just, you know, <laughs> Who shows the cocaine and all that? And, uh, you know, by, by my estimation, he probably have a possessed uh, and, uh, you know, uh, taking him maybe, say, 10 kilograms of cocaine in his lifetime. I'm going to take a guess. <laughs> Some experts in uh, using cocaine should, should teach me uh, what's the best, better estimates of, uh, you know, Hunter Biden's consumption of cocaine. Go ahead, Amanda. I can't imagine that that Joe Biden being the swinging guy that he was in the 80s when he got elected originally to Congress. I can't imagine that he didn't at some point do some cocaine. Everybody was doing cocaine in the 80s, right? Everybody. Yes. And he's he's such a a people pleaser, right? It's such a people pleaser. I mean, give me a break. Yep. It's a little yep. bit These, bonkers, but it, it truly is. The uh, the uh, I have talked about Hunter Biden being the cocaine user, right? As I said earlier, is that uh, this uh, Ashley Biden, his daughter, is a heroin addict, and now I know he she has to go to the Florida rehab, and know that, right? So think about their father is the one who made the law to lock up so many people, making America was the most incarcerated country, even worse than China. Give me a break. <laughs> and so, he's the president. But, but, but here's the thing, Peter, that, that I've come uh, to recognize uh, recently. If you look at uh, 
our politicians and our constitution and how there's constant hypocritical stuff going on, even from the the drafting of the constitution, it has it was the height of hypocrisy to state we we acknowledge all men are created equal. What? That is not fucking true. What is you are a hypocrite. You're a slave owning yeah. hypocrite. So, uh, so sorry, if we had a president, we need a I did not do anything, Amanda. Please come back. I don't mean to cut you short, Amanda. Uh, you're back. No, my phone keeps jerking out. It's okay. But, keep but keep it, going. It is. Going. It's American tradition to have a hypocrite in charge. I mean, we from the drafting of the Constitution forward, it's all hypocrisy. If he weren't a hypocrite, he couldn't be president. I mean, I don't mean to yeah, be bitter, but I mean, come on. No, you're not. Yeah, no, I, this is why today's episode is I call it a strategic ambiguity, right? A closet racist, like a Joe Biden, you know, is a perfect, you know, a perfect, uh, you know, strategic ambiguity. You know, I, I, as I always said, you know, the, when it comes to building a racially, multiracial harmonic society, Neither party is in, I don't know how to say, in the mood or, or, or neither party is made to, 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 to make it happen. It's not. I think we, just, they're just going to use a bipolar status quo to get themselves more votes, to keep themselves in the office. They don't give a shit about the environment. Trust me. They don't. They don't give a shit about the student debt, trust me. They do this posturing to get votes. Like I said before, if you really want to deal with the student debt, you go to the source. You cut down the cost of the college education. How many people are doing that? Nobody. Like I said, how should, you should have any money they're sending to Ukraine, okay? Oh, oh by the way, sorry, I may sidetrack here a little bit. I was find out to be hilarious. How come to defend Taiwan, the USA is asking the Taiwanese to buy, to purchase the Hamas or all those uh, fancy weapons. While to Ukraine, we're just going to send them for free. Is it because the Ukrainians are considered white people? Taiwanese are not? Because the, this is reported by this channel called the Democracy Now! on YouTube just the other day. We stayed in Afghanistan for the longest time. There's like hundreds of thousands of people who helped the U.S. military in Afghanistan apply to came to the United States. We only approved 100 some people. But in Ukraine, for Ukraine refugee, the USA already accepted 68,000 Ukrainian refugees. I'm not against white people whatsoever. Ukraine is a country when it was part of the Soviet Union, helped China to gain its independence. You ask any Chinese, they pretty much like both like you, they will like Ukraine as a country, as people, and so uh, and Russia the same, okay? My question is this, we stayed in Afghanistan for such a long time. Are we supposed to get more refugees to help to protect them from the Taliban who are in power? Are we setting up this kind of a barriers just be, simply because they are not white enough? This is what I have a problem with, you know, 
same thing. Like like you know, you know, it's like open border for if you're from European uh, countries or if you're from uh, some brown countries or, or, or global mm -hmm. south, you know, from shithole countries. So, we're, yeah, worthy Sorry. and unworthy victims. Sorry. Excuse me. Go ahead. Worthy no. Unworthy. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, th that's a Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky quote. There's the worthy victims of war and, you know, the evils of the world, and there's the unworthy ones that, you know, suffer the same exact fate, but are, you know, from a, a browner country or another culture or, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. the reason is, whoever the scapegoat is, whoever the boogeyman is, you know, whatever mm -hmm. they need to say about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you, absolutely. I think, Go ahead. I don't know. If mm -hmm. it, I don't know if it's racism with Taiwan. So I'm just thinking it through and I am n in no way a foreign policy, even follower most of the time. But my understanding is of Taiwan is that it's kind of analogous to how Puerto Rico's part of the United States, but it's not. Taiwan's not really its own country. There's that you were talking about that that strategic ambiguity around it. If the United yeah, States yeah. were to were to have Congress pass to spend money to give money to Taiwan. And uh -huh. or give wep you know, just give weapons instead of selling them to Taiwan. I think China would look at that act quite differently, don't you? I would just like I said, I I was truly sad. Wait, wait, wait. Is it mm -hmm. is that uh -huh. is that true? Don't you think that that China would see that differently if we were giving weapons to Taiwan the same way that we are to Ukraine? Uh, no, I think uh, uh, the the, the uh, he, he, here's uh, how I see it. I mean, uh, maybe I'm getting a little bit philosophical, but it, that, that's who I am. Like, this show about you know it's quite philosophical. Is that if you if you walk on the street today and look at each other, look at a stranger, you want to assess how much goodwill you have, across, you know, where you made that eye contact with that stranger. And if you, you're using that as a country to country, you know, in today's world, when one country look at another country, how many goodwill or ill will they have with, with each other? I'll just tell you, during those times of Gorbachev was the Secretary General of the Soviet Union, he decided and said, no, I'm not going to have any bad gesture or bad will against the West. I want to make peace. Okay, you know, prior to Gorbachev in the Harry Kissinger's time, you know, he looked at it. He said, "Well, you know, by the way, if I if I uh, I read the Shanghai Communique uh, just earlier today, it's a fascinating piece of work. It talks a lot about how the China is determined to liber liberate, help liberate the colonized countries, the colonized people, and in that communique." The China side is unapologetic, saying, yes, we are behind Vietnam, we are behind some African countries to help them, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and even with that said, the U.S. side, uh, the US side statement is this. The United States is willing to live, uh, live peace, uh, a peaceful coexistence with the Chinese Communist Party. 
So you look at all these uh, left-right people in the, on the TV show talking about communist China, CCP, blah, blah, blah. They don't read that communique signed by you know, Nixon, prepared by Henry Kissinger, with that strategic ambiguity on Taiwan, but there's no ambiguity on anything else. That China is helping to decolonize, and the U.S. agree they're going to co peacefully coexist with, uh, with China. Under that circumstances, now there's a lot of goodwills afterwards between the two countries. To answer your question, Amanda, obviously there's so many ill will between the two countries. People to people, I don't see any change. I will tell you this: I, I remember watching this a Japanese girl who lived both in America, in China, and in Japan. She has a video blog. She said, "I agree with her." She said, "If you came across an American." That American will be the nicest person you ever met in the world. But every time you look at the news about the U.S. government, they are the nastiest son of a bitch. And I cannot reconcile the both. So to answer your question, I might apologize, is that whether those weapons are given to Taiwan for free or by purchase with money, it doesn't make a difference. Because I think the hostility, for some reason, I think I know that reason is, was reestablished, okay? So I, I, so I, I don't think uh, it's going to make a difference how those uh, weapons were, uh, were given to Taiwan. I appreciate that point of view so that I can update my take on it because that's why we have these conversations, right? Yeah, oh, I tell you, you're from California. So Nancy Pelosi is in California, uh, is in Taiwan, right? I'll tell you this is something you will not hear from the mainstream media or even the so-called journalist, uh, alternative journalism on the calling or YouTube. Because to me is that for journalists, you want to see conflict. For journalists, because that's good for your business, whether you're mainstream or not mainstream, right? You want to see death. You want to see blood. You want to see sexual assault. You want to see missing white woman because that's all newsworthy, right? So Nancy Pelosi's visit China is totally cooked up by the mainstream media and alternative, uh, alternative media. And I'll tell you why. If you read the history book by you know, this guy, David Halberstam and you know, uh, Neil Sheen and all that, talking about Vietnam, talk, talking about Korea War and all that, the US domestic politics is deeply tied to the foreign affairs in which neither party want to show the other side they are the weaker hand when dealing with a foreign power. So in the old days, during the McCarthyism, during all those times, regardless what you're Republican or whether you're Democrats, the question on the debate is always this, who lose China to Chairman Mao? Who lose China to the communists? And later on, it will be, who is the person who uh, leader lost to the uh, Viet Cong, right? If you saw any softness, then you will be the traitor. You will be the enemy within, okay? So Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is 100% in preparation for the November election, just like Joe Biden's speech on the Independence Mall. She wants to establish this image that the Democrats are tough when it comes to foreign affairs. She wants to do every single possible thing she can do, again, for the politicians, to keep themselves in power. That's why she went there. 
And for that matter, I actually believe the Chinese government, again, I'm not a big fan of Chinese government, overreacted. The Chinese government should just pretend nothing actually happened. Okay, that, that's my, because again, to me, is that going back to Gorbachev, going back to Kissinger is that I want peace. I don't want war. As a Chinese, I would never allow mainland China to violently attack Taiwan for, for reunification. I just don't want Chinese to kill Chinese. I don't want any human being to kill any human being, period, for whatever. You know, do I want Taiwan to be independent? Not, not really, either. I know a lot of Taiwanese, they don't want to be independent, right? But the key point is, everything Pelosi did about Taiwan trip is a totally uh, election campaign purpose. Nothing else. Trust me, nothing else. They've been, we've been selling weapons to Taiwan for the longest time. I'm not against it. You know, if Taiwanese has the money, why not? I'm not against it. And uh, so nobody will tell you that because all the journalists, their job is to stir things up. Their job is to have a war. To have a war, then you can have a report. You, have, you will have killings. You will have outrage. People will be watching TV, right? So that's how I see it. Oh, so by the way, I see Greg here. Greg, uh, you're, you're not on earlier. Uh, I, you posed a question the other day that uh, this guy, Chairman Yashitela, had a, a two meeting with this uh, uh, Russian person who were indicted. And uh, you somehow, it seems to me you're suggesting that this guy, uh, you know, is guilty of something or there's a probable cause of uh, this uh, FBI raid. You know, I have mentioned that just for the fact that you had a contact with an actual criminal does not necessarily mean you are a, he's a co-conspirator of a crime. Uh, there's a, still a lot to do. Uh, I've used the example of O.J. Simpson. If I happen to have a there with O.J. Simpson before the night of the murder, double murder, that does not mean I know his plot to kill two people the next day. That does not mean I was helping him to do that or helping him to just get away and all that. There's still a lot of investigation before you can establish these two people, Chairman Yashitela and this Russian guy is doing something as a real threat to the government of the United States. Okay, so, you know, I did, you know, I, I'm sorry I missed that, your question last time, but I answered it today. So, well, if uh, Amanda, if no more questions, we'll call it a day. How's that? Oh, sorry, Pretty tried to call me. Okay, let's, let's get Pretty and hear her or his thoughts. Hi, um, I was listening earlier, but I'm hearing an echo. I was hearing, I was listening earlier when you were talking about like um, how they used war, sorry, uh, how they used war to sort of, if you fought in the war, then they'd give you more rights, but it was strategically uh, ambiguous. And it was reminding me of, uh, I saw a, there's this channel called Red Nation or the Red uh -huh. Nation on YouTube. It's uh -huh. a Native American uh -huh. Uh -huh. issue. And they, uh -huh. the guy... The guy, uh, Nick Estes, the host, he was talking about how he was looking at photos of early, like when the naturalization, uh, like citizenship ceremony became uh -huh. like a real ceremony. Before it used to be just like they give you a piece of paper and 
and uh, you know, you go on your way. It was very just dry, and and then they decided at some point to start making it a ceremony. Uh, as I don't know if the Statue of Liberty had something to do with it, like, um, but the Ellis Island, like, the more people came from Ellis Island, they decided to make a, a big ceremony, and someone was. Someone had the idea, someone in government had the idea of bringing like Native Americans from, you know, the farther away regions where they lived over, uh-huh. to, Ellis, over to Ellis Island to take part in these, you know, elaborate ceremonies. Uh-huh. And the Native uh-huh. Americans were in their kind of uh, regalia and everything. And, um, and Nick Estes found a photo of his great grandfather, I think, or maybe his grandfather in one of in uh-huh. one of these photos. And he was really shocked to see it. And the weird uh-huh. thing is, which I didn't realize, maybe everyone who went to school here knows it, but I didn't know it, uh-huh. that uh-huh. the Native Americans didn't even have citizenship themselves until 1924. So they were being, you know, kind of used in these ceremonies, but they themselves weren't, weren't actually American citizens, even though I don't know who could be more of a citizen than the indigenous people, but I was really surprised. Oh, pretty. Thank you so much for calling in because you know why? You remind me something I want to talk about in today's episode that I forgot. Stupid me. I was not well prepared today, but thank you. No, I don't mean to cut you short. I will put you out no, no, and I'll tell you this. I want to tell you this. What Based on what you just told me, because you remind me something I totally forgot. It's a huge thing. The strategic ambiguity about the Native Americans is also the actual situation in the court of law is that how the court defined these tribes, and I have a name for it. It's called a domestic dependent nation. Okay, you can Google that. Tribal uh, tri- tribes in America, inside America. Because one of the reasons I was talking about this, I was there, I forgot about it. Still me, stupid me. So I was talking about one of the reasons this show never talk about never had a dedicated episode about Native Americans this. I do not know their legal status at all. Because who are they? Are they foreigners to us? You know, are they a country at war with the United States forever that there's never a peace treaty? I mean, do they deserve a seat in the United Nations? Because this is what the, some of the Puerto Ricans are saying, right? They want to be independent. They want to, so so now I find, then I find out they are called domestic dependent nations. Now every time you know, let's analyze these three words, right? So they are a nation. That's the last word. They are domestic. That's the first word. They are dependent. When you use the word dependent, because there's a lot of strategic ambiguity here. It depends on whom. On the white man, I guess so. But they are dependent on white men because the white men took up their land and you know killed all the buffaloes and the, all those good stuff, their food supply, the food chain and all that, right? That's why they are dependent on us. But still, what exactly is their legal status? Because I am not satisfied if I'm a tribal uh, Native American of this term domestic dependent nation. I want to settle for for the good. What is it? Because uh, I don't know how many uh, native tribes are here. I mean, even they say, well, if we don't treat us as a sovereign state where we can send two senators and one representative to the Congress, then we are not your thing. You're not not treating us as a sovereign state. We're domestic, but we're not sovereign state. How come? Your constitution said we should have this and that. 
right? So, and when you also use the word dependent to in a human term, a dependent means it's a child, not reaching the age of majority, right? Amanda will know this best. Then I will ask, since how many years, 400 years since we landed here in America? So how old these uh, Indian tri uh, native tribes, how long they have to wait to become a independent, domestic independent nation? Do they have to sign a declaration of independence for some reason, right? And also, because later on I'm gonna talk about, uh, I'm so glad you, you bring this up. I'm gonna talk about secession later on, okay? Secession is a very dangerous word, right? The FBI, uh, FBI, the FBI may be knocking on my door again after they read it. That is, how come Peter, you're talking about secession? This is dangerous, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, no. The Civil War is about secession. I know they're now in Oregon, there's a group of uh, folks in the western, the eastern Oregon wants to secede from Oregon to join Idaho. There's a Texas talking about secession. There's a Florida people talking about secession. Long Island in New York. Because I'm going to ask, where the, you know, oh, by the way, secession, I'm talking about what I just talked about is a secession proposed by the white people, okay? As we know, when soon after Civil War, there's a both uh, discussion both in the white elitist, elitist and the black elitist talking about whether black Americans should be just a seat to form their own nation, including going back to Africa and all that, right? So there will be, uh, and also there's a Puerto Rican discussions due to their status this with a strategic ambiguity. Should they secede? from the United States and be part of the United, Union, uh, United Nation. Right? So I'm, I appreciate uh, pretty you, you calling and uh, tell me about this because that's the three important words. Domestic dependent nations is the very, you know, it's, it's the strategic ambiguity we did. Right. The first nation, right? Thank you. Yeah, Thank and I don't, wanna, I don't wanna be, you know, condescending towards uh, native tribes or anything but if 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 they are considered dependents then uh, when you look at the level of you know infrastructure they have like not having oh, running man. water and stuff like uh, that like how yeah. you know you, sorry go ahead go ahead yes please go ahead well i mean if they're dependent then they should be taken care of but it's like exactly. <laughs> then i'll be negligent parents right yeah <laughs> like they, be... they go to usa too hey did there's a mother nation uh, called the United, uh, United States of America is a, is a lousy mother. <laughs> yeah. Right? So these are the discussions. Again, it has nothing to with the partisan politics, which I hate, because the partisan politics really divide the country. You know, these are the things I actually do want real leaders. Remember Obama when he was elected? The entire nation is hoping, was hoping for a transformational leader. I did. I voted for him. You know, he's not, again. He, I'm I'm happy he's not a bad president. I think you know he he did oh, he did well. He meet my expectation, but he did not fulfill what I dreamed about, and many many Americans dreamed about. Right. So that's why I'm not going to uh, you know I don't want to be arrogant, but I'm going to say because Henry Kissinger says so, who lived for 99 years and still thinking, he saw a lot. He's saying basically you need the Chinese to make America 
uh, a racially harmonic society. I'll take that as a compliment. I agree with him. Because the only person who built a successful nation that are multiracial, harmonic, and prosperous is this guy Li Guangyao in Singapore. Right? It's called the Switzerland of the Asia and all that. So I've never been there. I'm pretty sure it's a nice place. So yeah, great conversation. Uh, again, thank you so much, Pretty. Anything else you want to say before I close it up for today? Are you good? Okay, cool. Well, I want to thank everybody. Right? I truly do. And uh, and please pass on this uh, our fun discussions to to your friends and all that. And because uh, uh, I will, I definitely to keep this going. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your Sunday. Bye now.